Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. This episode is a preview of the 2019-2020 term of the U.S. Supreme Court. Our special guest is Robert K. Cry, a founding partner of the law firm of Molo Lampkin. Mr. Cry represents clients before the U.S. Supreme Court, has authored more than 40 Supreme Court briefs, and served as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia. Welcome, Mr. Cry. Thanks for speaking with us about the new term of the U.S. Supreme Court. Hi, Jeff. Thanks. Great to be on. Mr. Cry, what case on the Supreme Court's docket this term is likely to have the biggest impact on investors? So there are a few cases in the pipeline with big implications, particularly ones for pension funds that invest on behalf of employees. Probably the most important one is a case called Putnam Investments versus Brotherston. The court hasn't granted review yet, but it asked the Solicitor General for his position back in April. And based on the court's actions in some prior cases, there's a pretty good chance this case will end up being heard this spring. Putnam involves the standards that govern planned fiduciaries under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Putnam's a mutual fund company, and the case concerns Putnam's 401k plan for its own employees. The plan was set up so that nearly all the investment options available were Putnam's own mutual funds. The plan administrators didn't do much to vet those funds or remove poorly performing ones, and the plaintiffs claimed that that was a breach of their fiduciary duties. They also argued that the plan participants suffered losses because Putnam's funds performed worse than passive index funds over the same period. The main question in the case is which party bears the burden of proof on whether a fiduciary's breach caused those investors' losses? Putnam claims that plaintiffs bear the burden and that plaintiffs did not meet it because they never showed that if the plan had been more diligent about vetting investment options, the losses would not have occurred. The plaintiffs, by contrast, argue that the defendants bear the burden, relying on trust law principles that say that once a plaintiff proves a breach of fiduciary duty as well as losses, it's the defendant's burden to prove the losses would have occurred anyway, even absent the breach. The federal courts of appeals are split six to four on that issue. And a couple years ago, the Supreme Court was poised to grant review in another case, but that case settled. The burden of proof is critical for pension funds and other institutional investors that owe fiduciary duties because if plan sponsors bear the burden of disproving causation, they could face significantly greater liability for their investment decisions. Now, there's also a second question in the case, and that concerns what counts as a loss. The plaintiffs argued that they could establish losses simply by showing that the funds underperformed a benchmark index fund. Putnam responds that this is not a fair comparison because actively managed funds pursue different strategies and should not be punished based on hindsight. Putnam also points out that the plaintiff's rule will have a distorting effect because it will induce plans to invest only in index funds to reduce their exposure. That issue, too, is a significant one for 401k plan sponsors and other institutions that manage employee benefit plans. Mr. Cry, are there any other issues likely to come before the Supreme Court in future cases that investors should watch for? Well, one area definitely worth keeping an eye on is merger litigation. This is an area where there have been some major developments over the past few years with more likely to come. When one company wants to acquire another, it often makes a tender offer to the other company's shareholders. Sometimes shareholders have complaints about the adequacy of the offer or the disclosures that accompany it. For many years, shareholders filed suits in Delaware State Court. Some defendants claimed that that litigation was prone to abuse because plaintiffs would sue and then enter into settlements where the only relief was additional disclosures and attorney's fees. 
a few years ago in a case called Trulia, the Delaware Chancery Court said it would no longer routinely approve those sorts of disclosure-only settlements. Plaintiffs then shifted to suing in federal court under the federal securities laws instead. They often invoked Section 14E of the Exchange Act, which makes it unlawful to issue false or misleading statements in connection with a tender offer. Section 14E does not clearly address what degree of fault a defendant must have, whether fraudulent intent or mere negligence. It also doesn't address whether private investors can sue for violations as opposed to the SEC. The Supreme Court confronted those issues in a case last term called Emulex, but the court ended up dismissing the petition in that case as improvidently granted. Some speculate that it did so because the defendant had not properly preserved the implied right of action argument in the proceedings below. As a result, the court did not decide these issues in that case, but they are almost certain to come up again. There is a circuit split over the mental state required for liability under Section 14E. The Ninth Circuit allows claims for mere negligence, while other courts have held that willful fraud or recklessness is required. And then there's also the argument that Section 14E does not create a private right of action at all. Those are important issues for merger litigation. Now that Delaware's made it harder to sue in state court, the federal securities laws governing merger disclosures are even more crucial. Although the Supreme Court doesn't yet have another case on its docket this term presenting that Section 14E issue, investors should definitely be on the lookout. Speaking of Delaware law, Mr. Cry, soon-to-be-retired Delaware Supreme Court Justice Leo Strine recently issued a paper that, among other things, criticizes the 2010 decision of the Supreme Court in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. That decision struck down a provision of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. In his paper, Justice Strine described the Citizens United decision as, quote, unleashing a massive growth in unchecked corporate political spending, unquote. And he alleges in the paper that, quote, institutional investors have so far been unwilling to address, even though the human investors whose money they manage do not invest their money so that it can be spent by corporations on politics, unquote. What is your view of the Citizens United decision and Justice Strine's comments? And are there any cases that may come before the U.S. Supreme Court this term that may impact the Citizens United decision? Well, Justice Strine certainly is no fan of Citizens United, but it's important to focus on what the decision does and does not address. Citizens United held that Congress can't prohibit corporations from running political ads or engaging in other independent political advocacy in connection with elections. Congress can't prohibit the New York Times company from paying its reporters, and it can't prohibit CNN from paying for online content distribution just because those entities happen to be corporations. And the Supreme Court eventually saw the corporate expenditure ban in Citizens United through that same lens. The court did not hold that corporations are required to engage in political advocacy or that shareholders must permit their corporations to do so. And in fact, the section of the opinion strongly endorses corporate democracy as a means to ensure that corporations act in the interests of the shareholders to whom they're ultimately accountable. Citizens United certainly makes that shareholder oversight more important. Now, as you point out, Justice Stride claims that human investors do not invest their money so it can be spent by corporations on politics. Maybe, maybe not. If a corporation concludes that particular advocacy would benefit its business, many shareholders may well conclude that's an appropriate use of corporate funds. But if Justice Stride is right that corporations are engaging in political advocacy at the expense of their shareholders' interests, nothing in Citizen United prevents investors from holding corporate officers accountable. 
If this is indeed a problem, perhaps institutional investors should monitor political spending more closely, but ultimately that's an issue for those investors, not for the court. Justice Stein's recent paper proposes that public companies be prohibited by law from making political expenditures unless 75% of their shareholders consent. I'm skeptical that the current court would uphold a statute like that, which imposes a special burden exclusively on political speech. But to the extent a company's own shareholders believe that such a restriction is appropriate, nothing in Citizens United prevents them from implementing it. One more point about Citizens United. Although the court was closely divided over the expenditure ban, the court upheld by an eight to one margin the statute's disclosure requirements for corporate political expenditures. It's notable to me that most of the shareholder proposals on political expenditures over the past 10 years have merely sought better disclosure. So far, institutional investors have largely stayed on the sidelines for those proposals too. But again, that's an issue for institutional investors, not the court. The court is fully on board with disclosure requirements by a wide margin. As for your last question, whether there are any questions or cases this term that may bear on Citizens United, the answer is I think probably not. There are at least two campaign finance cert petitions in the pipeline. One is a challenge to Alaska's unusually low $500 limit on individual campaign contributions. The other is a Libertarian Party challenge to restrictions on testamentary bequests, as well as new rules on how political parties can spend contributed funds. Even if the court grants review in either of those two cases, in my view, they are more likely to be challenges at the margins rather than game changers the way that Citizens United was. That concludes our podcast. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Robert K. Cry of the law firm of Molo Lampkin. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.